Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you this morning. Good to be with you this morning. It's good to see many faces that are not familiar to me. I hope that I get a chance to meet you uh, after the service today, and uh, we're going to be we're going to be moving around. We have our equipping hour uh, taking place after our service this morning, which is just a fancy term for Sunday school. Basically, our Sunday school classes take place after our service, and so we're going to be moving around. But I hope that I have a chance to stop and greet you and talk to you after the service uh, today. As Jeremy was saying, we, uh, we're glad that you're here. We're glad that you're visiting with us. We do emphasize and, and put an emphasis here on membership. Now, a lot of people will tell me, uh, well, membership's not found in the Bible. That's not a biblical thing. This is an extra biblical thing that you're expecting people to do. Um, but, but that just shows that, that idea, I understand that idea, the word membership is not found in the Bible, I get that. And yet, God cares deeply about identifying who his people are. In fact, the entire Bible is about God identifying who his people are, those whom he is saving. He is not saving everyone in the world. He is saving his people. And so it's very important that he puts his mark on his people. And we know that he has put that mark of the Spirit. God has marked his people by the Spirit. And, uh, and yet we can't see the Spirit, can we? Spirit is not visible. And so God, by his grace, has given us a visible sign of his covenant. Those who participate in the covenant are marked visibly through the means of baptism. And so we, we encourage people to join with us visibly here at Trinity Church because we want, to know who we're, we want to know who we're participating with. We want to know who we're in this with. And as pastors, we want to know who we're shepherding. We want to actually know who we're responsible for. And so we are so glad. I, I say all this. This is like a sermon before the sermon. I say all this because I, I, I'm so glad you're here. But if you want to be here and you want to join with us and you want to consider me your pastor and, and these people, your church, please consider joining with us in membership so that we can know and, and covenant with you and commit with you together as we follow Jesus uh, together. We're very glad that you're here. As Jeremy said, we have a members meeting this up, upcoming Sunday night. Please, if you're a member, please be there for that. We have a lot of really, really, really important stuff going on. One of the things is we are appointing or affirming a new deacon. So we're excited about that. We also will have some really important announcements about our first two missionaries. We are going to support our first two missionaries. That's exciting. Yeah, we could get excited by that. I don't know who shouted out like that, but I'm for that. That's good. So we want you to make we want to make sure you're in the know as far as all that goes and so be there this next Sunday night. We started last week a series in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 will be our reading once again for this morning. So if you will please join me in standing out of honor for God's word. We're going to read Genesis 1, verse 1 and 2. Now next week, if you come back next week, we're going to read the entire chapter of Genesis 1. And so don't miss that. You, you want to be here for that. But uh, today we're just going to read the first two verses and uh, focus primarily on verse number 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Hear now the word of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I thought to begin our sermon this morning, we would have a little bit of fun. I know that's not normal for me. I'm not really a fun guy, which is very ironic since my name is Fun Chess. This, this is very ironic, but no joke, when I taught in Christian schools, they called me Mr. No Fun Chess. If, I don't know if you knew that or not, but that's a, that's a true story. We're going to have a little bit of fun here. Let's see, let's see how with it you are this morning, okay? I'm going, I'm going to give you the first line of some classic works of literature. And then it's, it's, just here, it's just us here today, okay? You can shout out to me. You can tell me what book this is, what work of literature this is, okay? And we're going to start off really easy, really easy, okay? And, and kids, listen, you probably, some of you probably know this. First line of the book says, In a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. The hobbit! Where's Kylie at? Kylie, you knew that because you're reading The Hobbit, right? All right. Okay, it's probably the most famous first line of work of literature. Here we go. Call me Ishmael. Moby Dick. See, you guys are with it. How many of you have actually read Moby Dick? That's okay. It's all right. It's a wonderful book. Get the abridged version. I'm just saying. Okay. Not not really. Okay, uh, kids, listen to this. You can get this as well. Once there were four children whose names were Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. Which one is that? Lion, witch in the wardrobe. Very good. We have some well-read kits here. That's great. All right, you know this one. This one's easy, or should be. I'm going to read, and, and most of the time it gets shortened down, but this, this is actually a very long sentence. It's a wonderful sentence. Here we go. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. Tale of Two Cities. Normally you just stop after that first statement, right? It's a whole long sentence. All right, last one. You've done pretty well. I had a whole list of these. I, I, I thought about doing a lot because this is kind of fun. And if you don't think this is fun, there, there's the difference between you and me. This, this, this is where we're different. Okay, here we go. This one's for Jacob. Where's Jacob at? Jacob is bull. All right, here we go. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Pride and prejudice. prejudice. Good job. Pride and prejudice. How how many of you knew that? That that one was hard. Very good. Very good. All right. Well, we could keep going, but... As one author says, 
First sentences are doors to worlds. First sentences are doors to worlds, which is to say, she goes on to say, in the hands of our greatest writers, opening lines can cast an immediate spell, grab your attention like a starter's gun, set the tone, and even foreshadow what is to come. First line of classic works of literature are well known because they do just that. The first line of Scripture, as I told you last week, is seven, seven Hebrew words. Ten in the English language. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. These, these words are not just the beginning of the book of Genesis or of the Bible. These words are the beginning of everything. These words describe the beginning of the universe. Now, again, this is the beginning of everything from man's perspective. This is the beginning of the material universe, all that man knows. But it is not God's beginning. These seven Hebrew words begin the story of man, but they do not begin the story of God. These seven Hebrew words are what God wants us to know first off. This is where he wants our knowledge to begin. And I will tell you these seven words, these seven words give us the foundation of all knowledge. These seven words contain for us the, the basic, the foundational blocks of all knowledge. If we are to know who we are, if we are to know what the world is, if we are to know reality, we must, we must begin here in these seven words. Because of that, and I I really debated this, I thought it good for us to take an entire Sunday morning and focus on the implications of these first words. And I am not going to exhaust this morning all of the implications. I have simply identified seven implications for understanding God, concerning God, seven implications in regards to God, who He is. And six implications for mankind. If you're doing the math, so that's 13. That's 13 points. Well, we're going to move very quickly this morning. We're not going to sit. We're not going to dwell on any one of these points. A couple we will sit on longer than the others. I'm going to move pretty quickly. But what I want you to do this morning, I want you, I want you to take notes. I want you to think. I, I want you to take these implications and 
meditate on them, even over this coming week, as you think about your life, as you think about uh, your place, your situation, your circumstance. I think these implications are very important for us. And I, I do want to say this before I begin. This is, this is not me trying to preach to the choir. I, I'm not trying to say a bunch of things that all of us know are true and, and all of us go, yes, amen, that's true. I'm not trying to preach to the choir. I'm trying to challenge you and help you and encourage you wherever you may be today, whatever you may be walking through, however you may be thinking, I'm aware that some of you may come here this morning with with an attitude of skepticism concerning God, concerning life and the world. I want to I want to call to you, I want to invite you. Today, if you are a skeptical, to put down your skepticism and embrace what I believe you know already to be true. The first few words of the book of Genesis are written by a man named Moses. Moses writes not to you and me, first and foremost. Who does Moses write to? Moses is writing to a people. A people who had been called out of Egypt, rescued from the nation of Egypt. They had been redeemed from Egypt by a God who was very powerful. He demonstrated his power by overwhelming the supposed gods of Egypt and bringing this people out of Egypt to worship him upon a mountain, the mountain of Sinai. And Moses writes to that people. Moses writes to the people of Israel, those who had been delivered by God and were the recipients of God's promises, and Moses wants these people to know who their God is. That is the intended audience of these first few words. While these words are not written directly to us, did you know the Bible's not written to you? Did you know that? The Bible's written to different audiences in different places. While the Bible's not written to us, the Bible is written for us, for all people, for all of time. So with these seven words, with these opening words of the book of Genesis, I want to give you seven implications concerning God and six implications concerning man. And I want to do it for your help and I want to do it for your encouragement. And I I pray that it is a help to you this morning. Implication number one. Now, the first seven implications we're going to talk about are concerning God. It's right for us to start with God, right? He, he is, after all, the main focus of the scriptures. And so we start with the implications concerning God. Implication number one. Here we go. Implication number one. 
God is. God is. Now consider this carefully. Again, Moses isn't giving evidence for God in Genesis 1.1. Moses assumes God. The people that Moses writes to also assume that God is. In fact, the entire ancient world that Moses writes in, they all assume God. For just about everyone living before the modern scientific era, the assumption was that the material world owed its existence to the supernatural. To something existing outside of the material universe. This this has been the assumption of mankind for all of human history. Until the modern era. Where we have become enlightened. We are too intelligent for such silliness and silly thinking, right? We believe, mankind today believes, that material universe owes its existence to material universe. But, and this is very simple, that is not possible. Material universe cannot come, cannot find its origin in material universe. Why? Because someone has to put material universe into existence. It is that simple. And yet you and I will be told that the belief in God is unintelligent. When I would argue that to believe otherwise is foolish and unintelligent. This is man in their darkness proclaiming themselves to be wise, they become foolish, darkened in their understanding. No, Moses assumes God, and the people he is writing to assume God. The question for Moses isn't whether God exists or not. The question for Moses' audience isn't, is God, but rather, which God? Which God? In other words, Moses isn't writing to give explanation or evidence or justification for the existence of God. He's not trying to argue people out of secularism or humanism. He's trying to clarify who the God of Israel is. And this is important. He's writing to show who the real God is. It's important for us. I think we are too comfortable sometimes starting with this question. If God exists, then, conclusion, I don't think that's right. The question should never be if God exists, but rather God is, therefore God is. We need to be careful to avoid the prevalent mood of the day, which depends upon rationalistic thought in order to give us confidence that 
God is. Maybe this is a little heady for you. I hope not. I don't think it is. But this is the way many Christians try to argue today. They will use reason. They will use rationalistic thought, argument, to try to prove the existence of God. The best you can do, if you use reason, if you depend upon human reason to explain or to give evidence for the existence of God, the best you can do using that source is to come to a high probability. Do you understand what I'm saying? If you use rationalistic thought to prove the evidence or to prove the existence of God, the best you can come up with is a high probability. Now, I am convinced that if you use empirical evidence, rationalistic thought, all those things, if you use your brain and you look at the world and you use rationalistic thought, you will come to the conclusion that there is no other, there is no other possibility than God exists. He is the highest probability. Of course... If you come to that same evidence, if you use reason, starting with the opposite inclination, as does Richard Dawkins in God Delusion. I don't know if you've ever read that book. I'm not suggesting it. I picked it up a few weeks ago to peruse it, to look at it, knowing that we were going to be going through the book of Genesis. Richard Dawkins, in his book, God Delusion, he uses rationalistic thought... He uses evidence to prove that God probably doesn't exist, is his conclusion. And people pick up that book, and they drink it in, and they go, wow, I never never knew such intelligent people could help me so much. And yet, he starts where he concludes. And this is the problem with rationalistic thought. This is the problem with using reason and reason alone. Listen, those who want to disprove God's existence will use the same reasoning powers and empirical data and interpret it to conclude that God's existence has a very low probability. I I don't think that these, I don't think that these means, I don't think that this method is what we should do and how we should approach it. I don't think, I've come to the the place in my life, and I hope you're understanding what I'm saying here. I, I think even starting with if God is dishonoring to God, I don't think we begin there. Now, I know why we start that way, because we're trying to talk to people who aren't believers. We're trying to talk to people who are very skeptical. We're trying to talk to people who, who have real problems and real hang-ups with this idea of God. But, but listen, we as Bible-believing, we as God-fearing people, we don't start with this idea that if God exists, but, but that God is Isn't this what Hebrews says? By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Verse 6, 
Hebrews 11 verse 6. What does it say? Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. And that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And in fact, I I don't think that we need or are standing in need of any proofs at all whatsoever for the existence of God. We don't need any proofs. You say, why? Why don't we need any proofs? Because the heavens declare the glory of God. What can be known about God is plain to them in everything that he has made. We are not standing in need of any proof because he has given us resounding proof in everything that he has made. And as we look at creation, as we look at everything that is made, we know that there is a God. So, I would argue that then to back up and say, well, if God exists, is actually a first step to unbelief. God is. We must start there. Implication number one, God is. Implication number two, we're going to go a lot faster, I promise. Implication number two, God depends on nothing for existence. God depends on nothing for existence. In theological textbooks, this attribute of God, this reality, is called his aseity. A-S-E-I-T-Y. Aseity. And we see it clearly taught here in Genesis 1.1. God stands in need of nothing. Acts 17, 24 and 25, remember the Apostle Paul as he's talking there in the Areopagus. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God needs nothing. God stands in need of nothing. God depends on nothing. He is not lacking in anything. He is not lonely or in need of relationship or in need of something to do. He has created all things and not to meet a need that he has. But in order to accomplish his own purpose, I think this is very prevalent. Oftentimes, people will characterize God as being in need of relationship, which is why then they argue he created everything because he wanted someone to share his life with. No, God in himself is sufficient. He needs nothing. He has eternal, fulfilling relationship in his person he needs nothing from you. Do you know, you know how, you know how revelatory that is? You know how 
refreshing and, and restful that is, he needs nothing from you. He did not create you so that he could fill up any lack in himself. He needs nothing. He depends on nothing for existence. Which points to another reality, implication number three. God is free. God is free. What does that mean? God is not required or mandated to do anything. God answers to no one. He is truly free. Which implies that his will is perfect and unable to be questioned. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. God does all that he pleases. He's free to do as he would. Which also implies he only does that which pleases him. He is never backed into a corner. He is never manipulated. His hand is never forced. He has received counsel from no one. This is, this is the conclusion that Job had to come to. Do you remember Job? Do you remember what happened to Job? Job, that righteous man who feared God, who worshiped God, God chose because it pleased him. God chose to use Job as an illustration, an illustration, an object lesson to prove to his enemy who he was. And Job is at a loss, right? The book of Job, Job is questioning God. God, why would you do this? I fear you. I worship you. Why would you do this to my life? Why would you wreak havoc upon my life? I've done nothing wrong, which is part of their understanding, right? That those who have suffering in their life must have, must have offended God somehow. No. God does as he pleases. And what Job has to come to the realization, and this is what happens throughout the book of Job, what Job has to come to realize is God is God and Job is not. And what God does is right. And what God does has eternal purpose. He had to come to this, he had to come to grips with this, and, and this is where a lot of us are. If God chooses to use my life, if God chooses to use this life however long he gives me, if he chooses to use my life for one, one illustration, for one object lesson to his enemy, if he chooses to use my life in that way, 
It is right. And it is good. And this is what we were made for. God does all that he pleases. And everything he does is right. He is free. He is under no obligation. Which then, and a lot of these overlap as you see. Number four, implication number four. God has indeed purposed all things. God is, God depends on nothing, God is free, and God has purposed all things according to his own will. Now, have you ever thought to yourself, I sure wish I knew what God was doing. I sure wish I knew why God is doing what he's doing, much like Job wanted to know why. God has told us what he is doing in his word. This is the treasure of his word, right? God has told us everything we need to know about his will. He has told us everything we need to know about his purposes. He has not given us everything in his mind. That There are no books that could contain everything that is in God's mind. He has not given us everything in his mind, but he has indeed given us everything we need to know concerning his purposes in creation. And what we find in his word is that God is not arbitrary or capricious. God is not cast about by his whims. God is not controlled by his emotions. No, God, from the very beginning, from Genesis 1-1, God has a clear and stated purpose. Now, we talked briefly about this last week. The first two chapters of the Bible do what? They describe creation. The last two chapters of the book, the Bible, do what? They describe recreation. Creation to recreation. Now, realizing this, 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 these bookends that frame out the entire story of Scripture, realizing this, we see that God has always intended to bring things to this new creation. But seeing these two bookends, we go, we may ask, what caused creation as he intended it, as he made it, what caused creation to need a new creation? What caused creation? What, what happened in the story that created the need for a new creation? God reveals to us in his word his purpose to bring things to a new creation, a new creation that is centered in the glory of his Son. The center of his purpose, God has created all things for this purpose. It is to glorify himself in the redemption of his people through 
the work of His Son. That is why all things exist. As far as we are concerned, His purpose is to glorify Himself. Implication number five. God is ultimate authority. God is ultimate authority. Now, right here at this point, people will say, oh, I don't like that. I don't like to think of God that way. Indeed, we have a poor view of authority in our culture and society, don't we? But as we will see, God's authority is not a harsh authority. God's authority, as we have even already been saying, God's authority is not arbitrary or malicious. Some, some of you, some of us, when we think of authority, we think of that boss or maybe that dad or maybe that coach who would just fly off the handle, come into the room. I used to, used to, used to uh, spend a lot of time with my grandpa. And I'm telling you what, my grandpa had a temper. But they used to tell stories about my grandpa where he would come in, you could hear, right? You've heard these stories. You could hear the belt coming off, right? You could hear it going through the loops as he's taking off his belt. And you knew you were in trouble. And this is what a lot of us think of as authority. That is not God's authority. God's authority is good. Being the creator of all that exists, he exists as the sole authority. He is the sovereign over all. There is no place that exists, visible or invisible, that is not under his authority. Not one square inch of the universe exists outside of his authority. He is the ultimate authority. Creation then has been crafted by his intent to work according to his design. And it is a good design. It is a loving design. It is a design meant for the good of his creation. God has designed all things to work according to his will. And then by extension, his word, the word of his authority. His, his word is not an opinion. His word is not just one way of looking at things. His word is the final authoritative word. God's authority, the way he has designed the universe to work, it is good. It is meant for the good of his creation. This last week, maybe you've fallen it in the in the news. Morocco had an earthquake. Did you see that? Three thousand people. Three thousand people perished. A few days later, 
Libya experiencing catastrophic flooding. Libya. You know where Libya is? You know where Morocco is? We're talking about the north part of Africa. Largely unbelieving Islamic people. Those who've never heard of Jesus. Libya experienced catastrophic flooding. Last count, 12,000 people perished. They're guessing, they're estimating more than 20,000 people have gone into eternity. When you think of that, it's, it's interesting when we talk about God being sovereign, when we talk about God being the authority, when we hear of tragedies like that, people are very quick to lay the blame at God. Why? Because we know he's the authority. We know he's the sovereign. And so when bad things happen, the first thing we do is turn and say, God, why would you do this? Because we know he's the authority. We know he's the sovereign. But did you know that God did not design his world to experience what it's experiencing today? Did you know that? No, mankind is experiencing, we are experiencing the tragedy, the catastrophe we are experiencing because of what we have done. We have thrown off his authority. The design that he gave his world, we have rejected it. We have taken our fist and shaken it in his face. And the world does not work the way it should because of what we have done. So we should not look up at the sky and say, God, why would you? But we should look in the mirror and say, why would we? Why would we do this to this good creation God has made? Why would we do this? God is ultimate authority. Everything has been given design. Everything should work according to his design. But we have rejected his authority. And we are experiencing its consequences. Implication number six. God is a person. God is a person. God created the heavens and the earth. This demands the reality that God is a person. He is person. He has a mind. He has a will. God is not an idea. He is not a force. God is not code word for the universe. God is not his creation. He does not depend on his creation. No, God willed and purposed his creation and then he willingly chose to tell us, mankind, about it. He is not a concept to be molded and shaped, fashioned by us in whatever way that we feel best. 
God is a person and he has revealed himself in his word. And by extension, because he is a person, because God is and he is a person, we as people, as persons made in his image, we are meant to relate to God. We are designed to have relationship with God. That's what we're made for. God is a person. And then implication number seven. God is to be worshipped. God is to be worshipped. In fact, this is why Moses is writing to the people of Israel. He wants them to know the identity of this God who has rescued them. He is not just a God among many gods. He's not just a super powerful God that can beat up on the other nation's gods. No, this God is God alone. He is the ultimate authority. There are no other gods. No other gods exist. And all of their worship and all of mankind's worship is due to this God. But not in ways common to man. Not as the other nations worship their gods. No, they are to where Israel is to worship the true God in a unique and a distinct way. They are out to worship him the way the other nations worship their false gods. God is to be worshipped in purity, in holiness. This is, this is true as well. The God that made the heavens and the earth, he doesn't need a temple. You see, God, when God gave Israel a temple, he was trying to communicate to them who he was in his holiness and, and their separation from him. He wasn't providing the temple as the final means to worship him. He was trying to prove to them a point. God doesn't need a temple made with human hands. He has never needed a temple. Do you, do you think that the one who made all things can be worshipped in a temple made with hands? No. God is to be worshipped and get this, this earth that he has made is to be his temple. Mankind was intended to be his ruler priest upon the earth and bring worship from his creation to him. And that's what man has failed to do. God is to be worshipped. Not manipulated or contained or controlled. But to be reverenced. Now, very quickly, I gave you seven implications concerning God from Genesis 1.1. Six implications for man. Number one, implication number one for man. Okay, remember we said God is, but implication for man, number one, man is creation. 
God is creator. This is, we're talking ontology here. We're talking being, okay? This is identity. God is creator. Man is creation. Have you ever really stopped and thought about that reality? Have you ever really stopped and thought about yourself? Who you are at your very being and essence? At your very being, at your very essence, you are creation. Which has a whole list of implications. You are limited. You and I experience great limitation. We are limited by time and space. Creation is limited by time and space. And who gave us these limits? God did. God gave us these limits. Therefore, creation, creation, mankind, we are not God. But we are for God. We are not to take on and pick up the mantle of God and try to be God ourselves. What happens when we try to be God? What happens when we try to to blow past our limits? What happens when we do that? This is where anxiety comes from. This is where worry. This is where pride. This is where anger. And we can just keep going. This is really the essence of our sin. Trying to be what we are not. God is God. And we are not God. It'd be good for us to wake up every day, every day, not exaggerating, every day, and look ourselves in the mirror and just say to ourselves, I am creation. I'm not God. It's not about me today. This day is not for me. Wouldn't that be really helpful to do every single day? Every single minute, that's right. God, help me see you and who you are and help me see me and who I am. And help me to live within your ordained limitations. Implication number two. Man is creation. Implication number two. Man is utterly dependent. Again, there's overlap, obviously. Man is utterly dependent. Do you like being dependent on things, on other people? Do you like being dependent? No, nobody likes being dependent, do we? But you are. Whether you want to acknowledge that or not, you are dependent. Creation cannot sustain itself. Man cannot sustain himself. Every day, every night, Every week, every month, every season, every year, every generation owes its existence and endurance to God. This is, this is why he's built the calendar the way he's built it. To, to scream at us that he runs the universe and we do not. And when we 
reject that, we do it to our own peril. Every beat of your heart and every breath of your lungs owes its continuance to God. You realize that this morning? You are not sufficient to meet the day. Your strength is not enough. Your intellect isn't enough. Your knowledge isn't enough. We are completely and utterly dependent. Implication number three. Man is deeply indebted to God. This comes right out of the last one. We are utterly dependent upon God for our existence. And by extension, we are deeply indebted to God. All of creation and all of mankind who lives upon it owes its existence, its very life to God. Therefore, none of us can say, I did that. None of of us can take credit for anything that we have done. And this is at the heart, again, of our rejection of God. Romans 1, we've already quoted it a couple times. For although they knew God through everything that he had made, it was plainly evident to them who he was through everything that he has made. They refused to acknowledge God as God or give him thanks. We are indebted to God. Our life should be a life of thankfulness and gratitude. That's what our life should be shaped by. I I believe, I'm a firm believer, that the lack of thankfulness, the lack of gratitude, is at the source of all sin. We continue in our sin because we are not thankful. We have a very small view of what God has done and who God is. Implication number four. We are creation. We are utterly dependent. We are deeply indebted. And we exist. Number four, we exist for God's purpose. It is not my purpose upon the earth. It is his creation, our lives are not to be used or directed toward our own, our own end, but only to that which God has directed it. Again, we are not to seek our own purpose apart from God. Our lives are given to us for one purpose, and that is to glorify God. This leads to another and, and a an extending here implication. We exist for God's purpose, which means we are not an owner of anything. But we are stewards. We're caretakers. Our bodies were not given to us for ourselves. Our property was not given to us for ourselves. This world was not given to us for our own purposes. We are not owners of anything. This is really important. We'll be talking about this today in our parenting class. You are not an owner of your children. You are a steward of your children. 
They were given to you by God for his purpose. That is why he gave them to you. And that, that is why he has put all of us in whatever situation we are in. Did you know all he calls you to do every day is steward the situation and circumstance that he's placed you in for his glory? He's not called you to change it. (laughs) He's not called you to understand it. He's called you to steward it. Because we've rejected this reality, we as mankind, we've rejected God's purpose for our life. Therefore, we are not satisfied with anything, are we? We've always got to be changing our circumstance. We have this deep-seated dissatisfaction with life, deep longing to change. This is why we want to... I'm not saying this is sinful, okay? But this is why the furniture always needs to be rearranged. We've always got to paint the hallway a new color. Maybe even move to a new house. I'd only be happy if I can move to another place. Buy new clothes. Get a new body. Advance to the next stage of work. Maybe satisfaction is coming right around the corner. If I, if I can just make this one change. Again, making something out of our children. Maybe, and this, this is all too real situation for so many. Maybe satisfaction comes in getting a new spouse. That's my real problem. If, if only I could have a spouse that really loved me. Maybe. Maybe it's even changing my gender or my God-given role. Now, we all, we all look at that and we say, of course not. But how often on some level do we live that way every day? Discontent with God's purposes for our life. We are so taken with trying to find our life's purpose, our life's fulfillment, because we've rejected our Creator and His purposes for our life. Very quickly, implication number five. Creation bears the name of its creator. Creation, I'm going to go very quick. Creation is not an end. It is a means to an end. Creation was not given as the end. It's a means to an end. Namely, that all of creation exists to bring glory to his name. His name, his signature is written on my life. His signature is written in every part of creation. Why? To bring him glory. Apart from God, my life means nothing. Now don't hear me say there that I'm not important or that you're not important. Oh no, we've been made for something very important, for God's glory. 
His signature bears itself clearly upon my existence and upon your existence. Implication number six. All of this leads us to this final implication. Implication number six. Creation stands accountable to God. Creation is his. And it stands accountable to him. Now, all of this, I could summarize all of this by, by, by saying it this way. You and I need to have an understanding of God in this way. And even, even a child can understand this. Ready? God is big. And I am small. God is big. And I am small. Have you come to grips with your smallness? Again, don't hear me say that you're not important. You are important. You are significant. But your significance is derived from the one who made you. You have no significance apart from the one who made you. God is big. And man is small. This, this reality is what causes the psalmist in Psalm 8 to, to pin these words. Here, here's, here's what he says. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Yet... You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him mankind dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Wow. Wow. To this point, we have expressed monotheism. There is one God. But if we stopped there, we would not have said enough. We are not just monotheists here at Trinity Church. We are believers in Jesus Christ. Here, what God's word says. As we look at what God has made, we see some things very clearly about God. We see some things very clearly about man. God is big and we are small. God has given us a place of honor. God has given us a place of glory. What an amazing gift God has given to mankind. What amazing role he has given us. And yet we know As we have hinted at throughout this sermon, we know we have failed in this role that God has given us. We have brought great despair and destruction upon this earth that God has made. We have brought false worship into his temple. The earth, which is his temple, we have have corrupted our way upon this earth. We have perverted it. But God, he has purposed all things for his glory in the person of his son, Listen to Colossians 1.15 as it describes the person of Jesus Christ. He, Jesus, 
is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn, that means he is the authority. The the firstborn of all creation. That's who Jesus is. He is the authority over all creation. Why? For by him, that is by Jesus, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. Get that. He is the very one who sustains the universe. That's what it says. He is the head of the body, the church. That's you and me. He is the beginning. The firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. Whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross. 1 Corinthians 8, 6 agrees, says, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. All that has been said about God is true of Jesus Christ, for he is God. The second person of the Trinity became man, put on flesh. He put on man's limitations. He lived as a man and was perfectly submitted to the purposes and will of God. Jesus, as the image of God, is true humanity. Jesus is what every man aspires to. He is true humanity. Perfect. Perfectly imaging God and is therefore the authority as man was intended to have dominion over all the earth, Jesus. What does he say in Matthew 28? All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. That's who Jesus is. He has all authority of creation. He is God, the creator, and he is man, the second Adam, who has authority over heaven and earth given to him by his father. He came to glorify the Father. And this was the plan, always the plan of history. He came to glorify his Father and to share in that glory. This is what he says in John 17. In his death, he paid for man's redemption. We've perverted our way. We've corrupted our way upon the earth. Jesus comes and he pays our penalty. He suffers our consequence. Jesus bore the wrath of God against man. Jesus took that wrath. In his resurrection, he gains man's victory. He overcomes death. He overcomes the darkness. He overcomes the curse. And in his ascension, he finishes the work that he was sent to do and now sits at the right hand of the Father 
sharing in the glory. And what was the goal of all of that? What was the goal of all of that? Was it only man's salvation? See, sometimes I think, even in the way we preach the gospel, very subtly, we still make ourselves the point. We think it was all about us still. No, he didn't come to accomplish all that merely for man's salvation. We, we could reason that out. Just take my word for it. It wasn't just for man's salvation. He came. No. He came so that in his work of man's salvation, he would perfectly glorify God. The purpose of all of history is doxological. Do you know what that means? Doxological, doxa, means glory. The purpose of all of creation is the glory of God. And Jesus stands at the center of it. Where are you in relationship to God? Are you seeking to be God of your own life? Are you seeking to live life apart from God? Or do you stand in right relationship to God through His Son, Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection? invite you to pray with me as we close. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its simplicity. I pray that you would be glorified in our hearts and minds even as we go today, that we would have a big view of you, that we would have an appropriate view of ourselves, that we would have the right view of Jesus that he would stand at, at the center of human history for us in our minds. We would realize to bow the knee to him is not just to benefit our souls and our eternal existence, but it is to rightly worship you, the God of all, pray that you would help us to see that, enlighten us, change us as a result of what we have heard. We pray all of this for your sake, in your name, for your glory. Amen.